You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always, and welcome to our fifth year of The Perth Property Show. We've got a very special guest today. It is Kyle Jevons, director at Hesperia. I know a lot of people have been interested in hearing more about this business, more about this man for a while now, and the pathway he's taken to lead probably one of the most impactful property development businesses in Western Australia. A bit of a new business, but one that has seemed to grow like a wildfire in the last few years since the owners, Adrian Finney and Ben Lyle, decided to create a love child. Kyle, thanks for coming in. Trent, pleasure to be here. What a name, Hesperia. It's obviously not where you started. You've been on a path with Adrian for a while now. I'd love to talk about that career of yours from straight out of university to how someone gets to director of a business like that these days. Yeah, sure. I'll look, just quickly touch on Hesperia. So it was really the joining of Link Property, which was Ben Lyle's business, which would really focus on industrial property, complex land planning challenges. Ben already had a really strong team on his side and, and we started co-investing in projects. And obviously I was uh, with Adrian and had been for many, many years. And we had probably always focused on more town century precinct-based sort of projects, a lot of heritage work, residential, hotel and hospitality. Lots of apartments, right? And apartments, yeah, exactly. So I think from a cultural perspective, we align very much. We like solving pretty complex problems across the journey. We all got along really well, and that really put the two businesses together, which probably three or four years ago now. You don't see a lot of leading businesses in Perth who are in some ways might see themselves as competitors in the industry, competitors for opportunities in the industry, deciding to come together and join forces. It's very rare. I mean, the beauty is that we weren't really competing on anything. As I said, Link was purely on the industrial side and there was a level of co-investment and a lot of assistance on both sides of the business. We, at a similar point in time, had acquired, and this is with a Finney hat on, um, the Murdoch Health and Knowledge Precinct land and, and Ben at the time had said, well, I'd love to invest in medical as a, a future industry as well. So that really just pulled us together. As I said, both teams are always very strong in their own right, but putting them together really allowed us to get moving far quicker in the last three or four years and see some of the opportunities that were there. I'd love to talk more about Hesperia, but I really want to talk about you. Well, I um, I grew up in a property family. So dad was a real estate agent when he was much younger. So I had, I think, three or four of the professional groups. And then he pretty quickly, I think, in his, I'm pretty sure it was late 20s, started to move into townhouse land development and, and basically did that for the following several decades. So it was probably at the age of 18, I was working with him for about six months while I was at university studying uh, commerce. Your dad was a developer. Property. He was, he yeah. was, yeah. So I didn't really have a choice. And he pretty quickly said, look, you need to go somewhere else. And at the time there was a advert, I think it was for a cadet at Mervac, and I was still studying full time and playing footy and all of those other things and started working at Mervac pretty soon after. So I was I was pretty fortunate that I went to, well, it was actually Mervac Finney at the time, obviously. Mervac had just bought out Finney Group and Adrian was still there. So it was a really dynamic place and had to grow up pretty quickly. I was the youngest by probably five or six years at the time. What was your job? I basically was an assistant on all of the land subdivisions. So Mindari Keys, um, Mandra, we had three or four estates down there. Um, did a little bit of new business, worked on Bunker Bay for a little while as well. And I think, you know, there was a, it was a pretty big team at the time. It was, a, it was a good 150 people. So we, again, worked across pretty much all asset classes. And I was fortunate enough just to get a very high level of exposure for quite a few years. And I, I think probably where I ended up being a bit more fortunate again, finished university, um, 
I think I was 22 or so, and a chap who I worked with at the time, Matt Rayson, he decided to go and do his own thing. And I was doing new business at the time. And that's when the State Buildings Project came up for tender. So this is the Como? Como, yeah. Como, the Treasury and the State Buildings, all the hospitality there. To be honest, it was probably through just naivety and youth that I knocked on Adrian's door, I think it was at the time, and said, I want to do this. And I didn't know what was to come, to be honest. It just was an amazing project. And um, you could see some of the challenges that those buildings had in the city. And, and that's pretty much when I sort of started working for Adrian, I guess, one-on-one. Was that an audacious conversation? I'm sure there would have been people above you expecting to get that gig and you've just rocked up and said i'd like that thanks yeah i mean i was i was fortunate that as i said matt had gone and so i was really the only person in new business at the time and i whilst i i looked older i think than i probably was at the time i was um yeah my nickname is caveman and chewbacca and the rest so i think (laughs) at the age of 22 or 23 i'd been working for five years and to be honest i think people just thought i was a bit older than I was. adrian probably thought you're a bit older i think he did exactly (laughs) right so i think as i said it was sort of naivety to just yeah, it wasn't through you know experience or capability, but I just said, yep, I'm keen to get cracking. I remember having the first meeting uh, with Kerry Hill at the time, who has, has now passed. But I'd say you know the two of them, um, you know, it was just an incredible journey. And looking back, it feels like it was yesterday, but it's actually now been 17 years since uh, we started. And obviously, the buildings have been open for seven. But the complexity of that process in the first 10 years, I just, you know, you just sort of keep going through a bit of adversity along the way. You're telling me that most of your early years in your career, growing learning was on the one project, the state building there. Yeah, I, I think the complexity of it, trying to bash through challenges, I think without question came on that project. I mean, most of the other things from 18 to 22 were land subdivisions. There were a lot of town centre type opportunities and just sort of picking up across a range of projects, always working on many things. I was never really pigeonholed. At, yeah. You know, being a you just get thrown from, or an assistant development manager, development manager, you just get thrown from one thing to the other. Just getting things done. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But I think the state buildings, without question, there was a, I mean, we, we won the projects, first of all. I think there was about 13 submissions from around the world, all the typical larger hotel operators. And then I think it was about 18 months after that, we then said, well, there's a, there's a far bigger urban problem here. And we had the Law Chambers building, which people probably don't recall now, but the big brown building that stopped light coming into the state buildings basically had a lot of social issues and barrack street's probably a good example where at that point in time we're doing pedestrian counts and of every 100 people that walked down barrack street 93 were on the west side so it really stopped the growth of the city yeah i remember being a kid uh, taking the bus from around there coming out of trinity and it wasn't a great place to be, that mm. corner. Yeah. And then, so leading into how we actually, and, and all of our projects, and this is, I think, probably the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned from Adrian over the years is when we look at a project, we actually don't look at the site itself. We look at what's around us and how do we improve those land holdings, those relationships, and create a better place. And so it starts with what's around you. And that really prolonged the start of the project, but it then meant we basically needed to negotiate on behalf of the public trustee, Mervac at the time when eventually the GFC occurred. We had the Perth Diocese and Church, the City of Perth Mm. with the library. So really we needed to basically come up with a master plan that they could all support from a business case perspective. And that meant you're doing feasibilities on every single project and every different asset class. And that's sort of how we ended up getting to where we did. You're in your early 20s. I imagine attention spans not as long as it is now. 
10 years on a project is mm. a big ask for a kid. Most people want to see progress. Most people aren't even in the same organization, let alone role for 10 years. How do you stick to it? How does someone like Adrian keep someone like you motivated to continue through that project and not look afar at the other shiny objects, the other apartment buildings, the other opportunities that were obviously available within the organization at the time? Ten-year process obviously took a lot of time. It also did mean that there were other opportunities that I ended up passing up for a range of different reasons. But I'd considered going to China, um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and over east as well. I can't recall exactly when it was, but basically we had eventually solved the the problems with the adjoining owners to you know, get into a point where we said we're moving forward with this. And Adrian said, well, you need to state at the end. And I said, I'll state at the end. And that was basically the commitment to say, I'm going to finish this project. So, mm. you know, I don't know if he'd remember that, to be perfectly honest, but it was one of those things where I'd made a commitment and there was no better project, in my view, to work on in Perth. So therefore, I needed to finish it. And that's what happened. We didn't think it was going to take 10 years. Mind well, you, cl- clearly that loyalty is paid off, right? You're now at a position where you're leading the business sitting underneath, I guess, the owner amongst a couple of other directors. And you're, I would assume, in charge of a lot of the direction of the business these days with some really exciting projects that Hesperia has got on it. It seems like every second cool project that pops up on business news is... Hesperia's got their hands on it somehow and you, I, I, I have to question my own mind. I say, how have they got the in on so many of these great locations and great ideas? I, why didn't I think of that or why didn't someone else think of that? It was, so there's clearly a large brains trust there at Hesperia. But what does your day-to-day role involve now? In terms of, I guess, the, the greater business, I mean, we are a range of different businesses, really, I think, within one. We've got a really strong team. Judd, he leads industrial and master plan communities. That, you know, their team is exceptional, and that sits across those different asset classes and businesses. I manage the, the built form, which is, and heritage, really, which is everything from our medical-related projects, residential, we're still doing a hotel or two, and then the heritage assets as well. And then another chap, uh, Rowan Clark, again, he's special projects. So, you know, the likes of the film studio, social affordable housing. So I, I guess we, you know, we don't try and compete too much in the open market on things. It's, it's not really our go. So really, it's trying to solve what we think are complex problems across a range of different asset classes. And we learn a lot from each other, but at the same time, everyone's got their own pocket. And then the, the team that leads the projects, again, I think a second to none. I mean, we've got incredible people at a development director level and going all the way through to our analysts and accounting teams and marketing teams. So I think on face value, you know, when you look into the business, there's a lot going on. But then we also have, you know, very strong teams in each of these different disciplines that are highly focused on what they're trying to achieve. What does a day in Kyle Jevons' life look like? At the moment we have, I think within within my team, we have eight or nine buildings in construction at the moment. So there's the typical challenges of trying to get them finished on time. And we've obviously got end users that sit within them. You know, medical, we're doing several hospitals, mental health, residential apartments, hospitality, and all the people that are getting ready to use these buildings have signed up on the basis that they're going to be in at certain times. So that comes with a, a range of pressures. So managing a lot of those relationships with yep. tenants, with buyers, with consultants and then delivering these things to an extremely high level of quality but again the the partnerships that I think we have even though there are challenges at the moment we work with I, I certainly think the best people we can in each of those classes so multiplex are doing Murdoch Forest you know it's a highly complex project I think Peter Dean who's uh, obviously leads Hassel I think he you know he's done Optus Stadium the museum and has said a couple of times that this is the most complex thing I think he's worked on in a while <laughs> but when you integrate the buildings together it is a it is a hard project but 
it comes with great results when it's finished. And then Victoria House Pact are delivering for us. Again, a lot of challenges on the residential front, but they're due to finish in the next few months. And then a few other really interesting things, we're, we're providing our services pro bono to the Perth Children's Hospice in Swanbourne. So doing something that is going to just have such a remarkable impact on the, the community there as well. Well, will it get up? We've obviously yeah, seen the, the look, furor, uh, with the, which I think is an absolute joke, that's gone through the city yeah, uh, over yeah. a, a few months ago. Where's it at now? Yeah, so we presented to the DRP for the second time several weeks ago. So we're expecting, we are hoping and expecting an approval very early next year. I mean, all the things that have been thrown at this project, uh, most of them are, are false, you know, and we continue, you know, with fact and data and science to, to push back on these things. And, and to be honest, it is a loud minority, we feel, and the wider community, the amount Enormous. of people that reach out to talk about the positivity of this impact and how, you know, an empty lawn bowls pitch that has weeds going through it can't be used for something like this is is beyond belief to be honest but this is going to be an extraordinary outcome and for many families that you know really are in the saddest time of their lives when you think about your business's site acquisition strategy you said before you don't like competing would it be right to suggest that you guys go out there and try and find problems to solve or identify problems that can be solved and then use your brand the trust that comes with the brand to then get an early in to essentially create a project out of nothing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I probably should say what we don't always compete in is, you know, open market things where it's just about the bottom line. And for us, it's important to, you know, be doing projects that solve complex issues for Perth. We are a West Australian business. We don't do work anywhere else. Most people in the business are born and bred here. So there is a, you know, very deep passion for creating better places. And and that comes with, you know, the relationships obviously we have across a range of different disciplines and, and making sure that we deliver on everything we commit to it. At this point in time, we haven't had a project that we haven't delivered. We're trying to make sure that whatever we're focused on and commit to, we make sure it happens. And that's a really important part of giving certainty to people we're trying to work with in the long term as well. The Midland Brick site. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Oh, look, that's one that uh, Judd led. And again, I'm loosely sort of understand the obviously the, the bigger picture of it. But that's probably a good example. Again, I, and I won't speak on Judd or Ben's behalf, but an operating brick business, we don't run brick businesses, but there was a, you know, a clear opportunity to try and create some efficiencies within the business itself, but then obviously deliver a long-term... Use the land. Use land and create an amazing community outcome as well. So that project is being sold now. Um, obviously, BGC run the brick business. I think as far as I recall, almost all the jobs that people wanted to keep within that existing business were all maintained. Yeah, a really good example of actually going into a bit more detail. It's not really just a, a property play. It was, you know, operation and property. And that, and that probably goes to some of our longer-term town centre-type projects where we can operate retail and hospitality and curate these things to ensure that these places actually get activated really quickly and you don't necessarily have to do that in the long term, but allows us to get this fine grain sort of touch into these town centres as well that we'll see in other projects. You've built a bit of a reputation for heritage buildings and reinvigorating these. Yeah. I have to ask, why the hell would you want to do that? It seems very complex. Seems like there'd be a lot of people who care about this in the NIMBY sort of space. Mm. And the one outcome I've identified through speaking to other people, for example, like Adam Zorzi, who also enjoys that space, is when you solve a problem of maintaining heritage, it gives you a lot of leeway to do a lot of other things you normally wouldn't be able to do within the planning framework. Is that the benefit or is it, is it more yeah. come down to your personal creative preferences as well the benefit and the 
bonuses, whether it be plot ratio and the like, I think they're there because they're needed, not because you get that much of a benefit to therefore make mm. it necessarily worthwhile. A big part of how we try and learn, and I, you know, we talk about this with the team all the time, is if we're trying to create places, what is it that creates good places? And we all have the ability to understand that when you go to a great city, whether it's Europe or Melbourne or Sydney, and if you're on a street and it feels good, you then have to say, why does this feel good? Mm -hmm. Is it the streetscape? Is it the architecture? Is it the old buildings? And so a lot of how we think about these things is environmental psychology. Yeah, it's how we feel. Yeah, it's how you feel. It could be the same square meterage, the same amenity in in its physical form, but there's something about the the nostalgia, the the history. So old buildings, and that's not necessarily just old buildings, but talk about things that are, you know, whether it be mid-century or brutalist architecture, whatever it might be, they make you feel something. And they have a story that is very genuine and authentic. So when you can reinterpret that in a modern way, it creates a place that people want to go. And that means people are buying coffees or having a drink or wanting to live in an old building. So it's about creating places and these old buildings, one, they're complex, but they actually give you the opportunity to deliver something really special. Is that where Victoria House, you you thought you'd have a crack at that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that was a great example of something that, was so problematic it had a you know what's called a, a scissor cross plan so it was an old hospital obviously so the the way you know looked at that at the time we knew not many people were going to be trying to buy it because again very complex to say well can you put residential into a hospital and all these sort of other challenges well, i think for a lot of people if i can interject for a second mm. they don't know how to quantify the risk I think in property development, where you can quantify risk, that's where you can move ahead with profit. If you Mm. can't understand the risk, you don't have confidence about where the risks even come from, am I missing half the risks? Then most people will just go, ah, it's not worth it. Even if you actually did did the due diligence properly, go, geez, there's a lot in this. Yeah, yeah. So I think that comes down to, and this goes back to, you know, thinking about old buildings and sort of first principles are understanding the buildings better than anyone else before you make any decisions. And that's reading heritage reports it's reading their social history and then within that and this will sort of leeway into victoria house within that you start to understand what was important about those buildings and victoria house was is actually described as inter-alia war stripped so it was 1939 when no money was being spent on Mm. buildings and design so it's it's not a beautiful building yeah Yeah. it's extremely modest it's basically a little decal on the front and the rest of it is a very humble building so the scissor cross plan itself was delivered to by it was AE Clare, so basically delivered to provide as much natural light into the rooms as possible and cross ventilation. So, again, we acquired the buildings and thought there's an opportunity here to actually remove three of the wings, but the same principles get interpreted in a modern way. And what do apartments need? Cross ventilation and great sunlight and exposure. So, basically, the three apartment wings follow the line and the interpretation of the previous three wings that we removed. So whilst there is a bit of change to the existing buildings, we restore the ones at the front, now become hospitality. We've got North Street Store going in there and Western Kids Health, which is a a great little offering for that as well. And then the rear becomes residential and has the same principles as the original design and and the Heritage Council were, were highly supportive. But on face value, you're right, if you've just looked at the buildings, it would just be too hard and you think we can't do this. But they're the sort of things that we enjoy you know, understanding and trying to put, a, I guess, a modern spin on it as to how we can start to respect the buildings but also give them a new life. The business name Hesperia, it means Western Lands. Yeah. You said you're a West Australian company. Obviously, West Australian staff 
any interest in expanding nationally? Or do you think there's enough opportunity in WA for generations? There have been a few small things that have popped up over East that we've, you know, we've toyed with. I mean, we originally put a submission in on the um, Hobart Treasury buildings, but the government decided to, to hold those back. We thought long and hard, probably a decade ago, to whether we were going to submit something on the old sandstone buildings in Sydney that are actually about to open. That's a Capella Hotel now. But our strength is that we love this place and you know we understand the place very well and there's you know at the end of the day we're doing a few property projects here and there so there's there's plenty of opportunity here we think and as the city starts to evolve and change and there would have to be a pretty special project for us to go over there i think but um, we'll see we all suffer and benefit from the same factors in western australia and you obviously alluded to them quickly in that it's been a tough couple of years construction prices through the roof to an extent that you couldn't really expect sales values to keep up, which they haven't obviously, creates a real chicken and egg situation when it comes to demand and supply, especially in the residential space in WA. That obviously starts to shape business strategy as well with regards to where you spend your time and your money as a business going forward. Can you give us a bit of an insight into where you think Hesperia is going to be going over the next three to five years? Where are you focusing your efforts? Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, I think obviously as the city continues to grow, the you know, industrial and the land side of the business will you know, continue roll on. to yep, yep. They'll roll on and, and do the great work they're doing. Without question, the biggest challenge I think we're seeing now is obviously, and this is what everyone's talking about, construction costs still are highly problematic until we get significant amount of increased migration and labour into the state and we're going to have the same challenges. So when you get a new would know these stats far better than I would, but we're vacancy at somewhere around 0.5%. I think in the last four or five months, we haven't had one apartment project commence. And so we've got some serious affordability challenges coming up if we didn't already. And lagging supply challenges. Correct. We haven't, like, we're filling them now. Imagine mm. where we're going to be in a couple of years. Yep, exactly. And especially as everything opens up again. And we're not losing that many people in the state because there's obviously job Why growth, 70 yeah. or 80,000 jobs getting advertised all the time. So how, how do you actually come up with ways to deliver product and and I guess again I guess the beauty of being in each of the different asset classes we can sort of chop and change as we need to but you know we have a very strong focus of delivering precinct based projects and obviously Murdoch is one of those where we're delivering a range of different assets everything from as I said mental health to hospitality to accommodation and job opportunities as well that sit out there. Stirling is a similar scenario to Murdoch where we've done one stage there, we've got another several to go. Obviously the heritage assets, that always takes time. So the wool stools in Fremantle going through a design competition at the moment there. So that's another exciting thing. Probably the biggest concern is the social and affordable housing components. and, and Anything that's not luxury, let's put it that correct. way. Anything right? that's not luxury, spot on. So again, in, I guess in our business it's one of those things where you could potentially consider that there's brand challenges with delivering high-end residential product or hotel accommodation and then deliver social and affordable housing. But I guess going back to my point before is, you know, we've got an ab- obligation to try and assist in fixing and helping this problem. So without question, we're going to be trying to do what we can to make sure that we can assist the state government and the community in delivering this sort of product. Um, that will come through things like the, the housing um, pipeline that the state government's recently put out. We're down to a couple of parties on a couple of really interesting precinct-based sites, you know, Leaderville and also, as I said, Stirling, and trying to do work with community housing groups. We're, we're dealing with them on a daily basis at the moment to see how we can provide our expertise and resources to assist in that space as well. And, of course, build to rent 
eventually will be here at some point in time. When is, is a big question, but again, we've got a, a pipeline of things we're pulling together for that, but the returns aren't there at the moment. We haven't had the affordability issues that the East Coast has, and we've got construction costs that are greater than the East Coast. So that market is, whilst it's, it's coming and we think it'll be here, we, we don't know when that is at this point in time. If I can be a bit cheeky, can a company like Hesperia with the pockets of Adrian Finney simply just go, you know what, we know this is a good site, we know there's no supply in this space, it might not work now, but we're just going to build it because two and a half years from now, people are just going to have to pay what they're going to have to pay. Uh, I mean, there's a bit At of At some that. point, we need a step yeah, change. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, in some respects, there there is that philosophy that you can go and spec residential, which hasn't really been done too often in the past. But I think we've still got the same constraints as most other people when it comes to you know financing and the like. And mm. But for us, it's again, building those relationships with institutional partners, superannuation funds, community housing groups, to really try and take away that risk and ensure that whilst we might form a view that if we build it, the Field of Dream story, they will come. Uh, I think we still need to be a bit more strategic and careful around how we deliver that product to ensure that we're not taking too big a risk that, you know, for whatever reason, the supply does increase, that we don't put partners and, you know, and ourselves in a position that we're uncomfortable with. But yeah, without question, I think some of those big changes need to occur. So is it fair to say you don't see Hesperia in the space where they're building 150 apartments in a Maylands or a a Melville or anything like that? I wouldn't say completely on, on spec, no, mm. no, it, uh, just serious risk. We would do it if we had community housing partnerships and the like, which we're working on. So um, as I said, the, the housing um, pipeline that the state government's put out where we know that we're creating either long-term annuity for super funds to say, well, we can acquire and fund these projects at lower yields. Yeah, mitigate that yeah, back-end exactly. risk. exactly. So yeah. those things will definitely happen. But in terms of just going and specking projects of that size and scale, I think it would be unlikely. See, yeah. doesn't it just demonstrate, you wouldn't be the only one, that there's going to be a huge middle ground missing yep. in yep. medium to high density product in Western Australia for years to come? Couldn't agree more. And I, I think if we, again, start to think about the bigger challenges and the, I guess, the systemic problems of why this is probably the case, I think it, it all, certainly in my view anyway, comes down to we don't really have a hierarchy of master planning over our inner ring. And, no. And again, we, we had the... Um, master plan suburbs, but not the city itself. Yeah, correct. So we, we had the you know, Stevenson-Hepburn plan in 1955, you know, it was very modernist in nature and subject to who and what guides the, the thought process as to whether it was positive or not. It was car-centric and has ended up that way. We lost, I think, within 10 years, 92% of our city buildings and the heritage buildings, and then it didn't have... Heartbreaking. You think about what's on the St. George's Terrace. You know, the Citibank building was the most beautiful building in Perth before it was a Citibank building. Yeah, exactly. We'll never get that again. No. And then so the the outer suburbs didn't have a plan at that point in time. So as, you know, the population's quickly grown, we've got 140 councils for only 2 million people with no clear master plan over the greater inner ring. And then we obviously have local planning schemes for each of the councils. And so we end up in this position where we just see the challenges. It it really is. Whereas, you know, we look at Brisbane, 1.2 million people with one One Brisbane City Council. Even, you know, Sydney, who... It's probably a bit problematic. They have 8 million people and they've 120 councils. Mm-hmm. And so we're 25% Four times as bad. of the population <laughs> yeah. and we've got more councils. And it's not, not to say that necessarily, but the problem is the process and the system is driven by communities that aren't worried about the greater state and the greater city. 
And so we certainly think that the easiest and quickest way is that if planning outcomes are, are driven by an uh, overarching master plan that looks after the interests of the entire community, mm. then all of a sudden we end up with an amazing city. But until then, we're going to have this clash of interests. My argument is an economic one and it obviously based in planning. And I know Hesperia sits on both sides of the fence and why wouldn't you? But I strongly feel that if there wasn't an ability and an incentive financially as well through first time owner grants as well, but even just the ability to allow developers to continue the urban sprawl, which is a far less complex system and therefore less risky system uh, of property development, uh, then there would only be one way for all of the brains in property development to spend their time. It would be on infill. It would be on apartment buildings. Mm. Uh, there wouldn't be an option for consumers, being home buyers, to go and buy that 400 square meter or 300 square meter block somewhere out 50 k's from the city. It just wouldn't be an option. Mm. Uh, therefore, they wouldn't prefer it because there would not be that uh, that opportunity there for them and the marketing wouldn't be spent to get people out there as well. We wouldn't waste all that money on the services. If the planning system didn't allow for it, there would only be one option and that would be infill in the middle ring. Mm. And unfortunately, because of the price points, because of the affordability and the way that the uh, pricing mechanism works, it doesn't make sense for people, for businesses like Asperia to spend all their time in that space when they could continue to operate in East Wanneroo or places like this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, correct. And I think in some parts, I, I don't disagree that if you didn't allow it to happen, then all the minds and the focus needs to be on the inner ring, which is true. But I think if the planning system supported consistency about what the inner ring looked like, then you could actually have both because you, you're getting really consistent product. You're getting great places where people are delivering amazing outcomes and people start to compete in that so, space. As so well. what you're talking about is an infill planning framework that's actually as easy to operate as uh, urban expansion spot on yeah and i I think i remember is that possible yeah absolutely i think it is but it does need to be probably led by the state government Mm. benefit of the state and the wider city so it needs to have its own framework that supports it because otherwise we just end up in the challenges that we've seen and that's why the affordability across the middle market so hard everything takes far longer than it should um, we don't have consistency of how we deliver these projects so it's, it's a real challenge and one that needs resolution one thing that we I picked up a few weeks ago in one of these episodes is the discrepancy in density where we have high density within the inner ring and then it scales down a bit and then it goes to low density for 20 kilometers mm. and with these new master estates simply from an affordability factor which i think hides behind optionality we go back to options of medium and high density again yeah, yeah. so there's huge gulf yeah. from f- really five to 25 kilometers out from the city of low density and then simply because of affordability we go back to high density again yeah, yeah. and all that does is create slums yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's problematic. And again, it's, it's not a clear rollout of how to deliver great town centres. It's quite reactionary. We've got different planning schemes. You know, the parking's a, a classic example where we are still a car-centric city, which everyone understands. But in one planning scheme, you can go and deliver 1.7 car base per apartment. But in another town centre, you might only be able to deliver 0.8. So all of a sudden, people move to the 1.7. And so someone that is trying to do the right thing by reducing the amount of cars and deliver a sustainable project, nothing happens. Whereas if you can't you have sell con- them. You can't sell them. So whereas if you have consistency across the board, all of a sudden you're competing for the right things like 
you know, quality apartments, great architecture, great design, great sustainability, all those things. So it's not an even playing field. I mean, unfortunately, that's where the focus just goes to certain pockets in certain areas. Cole, do you have any suggestions off the top of your head, things that sit on your shoulder every day where you think, geez, if this was fixed, and I know you've just referenced a couple, but if we can think proactively about this, how would you start to fix this system further? Having a, a planning system that cares about the greater inner ring and has consistency and has a very clear long-term master plan to bring people back into the inner ring. And that includes the city of Perth as well. Would you prefer one state system that was homogenous across the state rather than a planning scheme for every single council? Yes, without question. No doubt. I think that's the way we create an amazing city. There's so many examples across the world. And over the years, I think Fred Kent had been here, Jan Gell, some of the greatest master planners in the world that have provided, and Urbis have done a huge amount of work on this, that have provided a range of different examples as to how this can be delivered. And unfortunately, we continue to, to ignore what they've delivered and what they've provided to us over the years. So I, I think without question, that's, that's the solution. When I was younger, I used to go and explore the South Fremantle Power Station. I've always been excited to see what's going on there, but it doesn't seem like a lot's happening there at the moment. Can you talk to projects like that? Obviously, we spoke about Victoria House, but the Power Station, other empty historical buildings as well. You guys clearly seem to be wanting to solve those problems. In terms of the South Fremantle Power Station, we, we actually haven't been involved in that at any level of detail, apart from recently, I think we are asked a question around whether we think it should be kept. And this probably is a, a good segue into just talking about how we treat our buildings, I think, and, and probably going back to what I mentioned before around the buildings we lost in the 60s and 70s, I think, you know, we haven't had a level of respect for these old buildings that we need to. And there's countless examples where they've become very costly to maintain, but at the same time, these are critical parts of our European Whatever history. Whatever history we have, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I do feel like, you know, if we look at both power stations, state buildings have been empty for 20 years. Uh, Victoria House had been two or three. Sunset in Dalkeith is not in great condition. Please do something about this building. Yeah, and there's, and there's a range of others. So my gut would say that if, as a collective, the state said, actually, for 10, 15, 20 years, we haven't quite respected these buildings. And it's not, not a political no. thing at all that they haven't been respected. So if all of a sudden a level of capital was put aside, and it's happening slowly, but to ensure that these buildings are protected and respected, if it happened 20 years ago, all of a sudden the East Perth Power Station would be resolved, mm -hmm. the South Fremont Power Station wouldn't have the challenges it has now. Um, the state buildings probably would have been done 15 years earlier. So I think that's one item in particular where considering position as a state and how healthy we are, that we need to invest more effort, time and money into these old buildings to make sure they don't go into ruin before they end up moving hands. You're right. You identify this is the time. There's an opportunity here for us mm. to actually build some heritage in Western Australia or, or create that for 50 to 100 years from now. We, it hasn't been knocked down like it was in the 60s and 70s. And I still can't imagine the mindset of people back then to, to think about how great it would be to knock these buildings down. I just cannot imagine that. But we've learned those lessons clearly. Let's not make those mistakes again. There are these fantastic assets we have in Western Australia that are not used at all, as you've said. Well, let's get the best minds doing something about it. Yeah, yeah. And then I think, I mean, when you, you look at a lot of them as well, the, the locations they're in, and this probably, again, goes to a, another very important part of the conversation, is we obviously have our Indigenous history here. So we have the most extraordinary landscape in the world that's so incredibly unique. So to see how we can start to look at engaging with 
indigenous cultures in some of these new precincts from a landscape perspective mm. and start to weave what we see at Kings Park, and you know, we've spoken about this many times in the past, start to weave Kings Park through the city down to East Perth. It starts to assist in a level of reconciliation. It starts to ensure that we're respecting the true beauty of our landscape, but then tying it into our more modern history in terms of architecture and design. And I think if we can manage those sort of things and do it in a, you know, a very process-driven way where we start to combine these things, we've, again, got the ability to create one of the most unique cities in the world. But un- until then, and as we you know, see Langley Park as grass and a footpath and the like that is not used, no. we're not using our assets in a way that either brings people back into the city, but secondly, also doesn't create this alignment of pre-European history and and obviously European history. Can we talk about the market for a minute? Sure. Where do you think it's going to be in the next year? I ask everyone this. People ask me this every every day. What do you think? Obviously, we're seeing this sudden jump in interest rates, which is causing a few challenges. If this hadn't happened and we hadn't seen the pressure that's happening in Europe and the war, United States, the inflationary pressure, I would say without question Perth was going to have a dramatic price increase across you know, commercial space. I think today something popped up that our office buildings are now at 80% occupied, residential vacancies are where they are, there's no supply. Every fundamental says massive boom, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yep. And I think even with the pressure we're seeing externally, unless you know there's a serious collapse in global markets or yeah, whatever it might like be. Like a Keating style. Yeah, I struggle recession. to see how we're not going to have a huge amount of residential growth in particular. As I said, there's 70,000 jobs still available. Wages are equal to what they are on the East Coast, but we don't have the affordability challenges. So it's really challenging to see how we're not going to see price growth. I think. And for me, another leader in the industry seeing the same situation, we're probably always going to have a little bit of rose glasses because you have to be an optimist to be in property development in the first place. But I also cannot fathom how unless we see some real global pressure that we've not seen in a generation or two hitting western australia and west australia specifically this is not an australian issue that we get affected by it's it's a west australian market we sit in Uh, unless we see those situations those fundamentals hitting our current situation the numbers have to be lying for us to not be growing yeah completely and i I mean you you just look at look out the window and the place that we're living in, and it's an extraordinary place. And uh, especially with what we've seen in the last two and a half to three years, as we said, an enviable lifestyle, all of these sort of things. But probably just goes back to where the real opportunity to continue to grow is, is making this inner city and the inner city ring um, achieve all of these other education, culture and the arts and creating a place that is vibrant all the time. But again, we're seeing it now. It feels like well and truly opened up to the world again in the last month or two and moving now into festival season, wearing my Art Rage Fringe World hat oh, now. So keen for Fringe. Yeah. And, my um, favourite part of you. And it's, it is, I mean, I, I couldn't think of, if you dropped into the middle of Perth in late January or early February, I couldn't think of any better place just to be you know, having a beer and watching a show anywhere in the world. It's amazing. Last thing I wanted to talk about was culture within Hesperia. Mm-hmm. What makes your business such an attractive place to be? If, if you look at LinkedIn on a weekly basis over the last three or four years, there isn't a business that has hired and, and expanded so much in this space as much as Hesperia. It look, it's like you've got a new analyst or a new development manager starting every fortnight. How are you attracting such good stuff in an environment that cannot find staff? I mean, probably like I was saying before, we, you know, there are very clear teams. So it, it appears that there's a, a lot of movement, but there's also a lot of long-term staff that have been with us forever. And, and they're really the ones from day to day that are creating the culture within the team, you know, learning, education. The beauty of being in each of these asset classes, as we said, is that 
people have the opportunity to move from teams to teams where they think, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind doing a bit more built form or I wouldn't mind doing industrial. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility from that perspective. And I, and I think, you know, that without doubt, this is a place where we're here to solve problems. So if something goes wrong, which it does, we don't want to dwell on it. We just want to say, all right, how do we fix it? And so that that is probably, the, I think, the, you know, the key point and the key message is that we're always going to hit problems. It's a really complex industry, but it all comes down to attitude and work ethic and motivation to deliver projects and create a better place. That's what it's about, just creating a better environment for our state. I think it helps when you've got a business that is continually moving forward, continually looking to find new problems to solve and then succeeding at doing that. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Yeah, and, and that's certainly probably what I touched on before, that if you continue to try and find better projects and do things that are at a, a level that are equal to anything at a world scale, then the motivation's there. It's a, it's a really inspiring place to work and we've got a great team. Bonus question. If you could tell anyone right now listening about a project that you love that you reckon people should come and check out or see what we've done, something you're really proud of, something excites you that you'll be telling your kids and grandkids about, what would it be? Look, the state buildings are still something that you know incredibly proud of. You know, it was such a journey and probably get the most enjoyment now walking in and just seeing people there, you know, looking around and experiencing the, the place and the spaces, but importantly, what it's done for the greater city and how it's extended down to obviously that end of Perth. Victoria House is going to be really exceptional, really hard project. And I think the people that are going to move into that and, and experience that, there's very few opportunities where you get to have a new apartment but still be part of the heritage project. So that's obviously a really interesting one for us. And the wool stores, I think, I wouldn't say it's as complex as the state buildings, but to try and deliver it with some of the challenges with those buildings. I mean, we, we've got a sensational team on that. That is taking a lot of brain power. And then we've got things like Gloucester Park, where we're working with the, the membership base there. And again, a very nuanced structure down there where we're trying to maintain and will maintain racing infrastructure for them, but at the same time create some opportunities within a greater East Perth town centre down there as well. So put it this way, we wouldn't commit to a project if we didn't want to do it. And then I think, again, just wearing the, you know, I guess the community hat, the the Perth Children's Hospice will be um, such an important facility. So yeah, look, they're they're all interesting in their own (laughs) way. And then there's a couple of others, obviously new business that, fingers crossed, next time we chat, they might be on the horizon as well. But yeah, there's there's never a dull day. There's always a problem, but there's whenever there's a problem there's always something we can fix well that's your job these days i would (laughs) have thought just like mine it's mainly just putting out fires every day no doubt no doubt kyle jevons director of hesperia really it's a massive privilege to have a chat with you and as you foreshadowed we'd love to chat to you again about where you guys are going in the in the new year thanks trent and love the work you're doing here as well it's fantastic to give this exposure to the greater perth market really appreciate it thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!